This is Steve Carroll, and you're listening to EM Basic Essential Evidence. Today we'll be talking about a study that helped us change the way we think about kids who have fever without an obvious source. This study helped us save a lot of time, money, and resources, and helped us avoid routine blood draws in little kids in the ED who have a fever but look well. As always, this podcast doesn't represent the views or opinions of the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, or the Fort Hood Post Command. The title of this article is Prevalence of Occult Bacteremia in Children Aged 3 to 36 Months Presenting to the Emergency Department with Fever in the Post-Pneumococcal Conjugate Vaccine Era. It was published in Academic Emergency Medicine, March 2009, and the first author is Matthew Wilkinson. I'll post a link to the free full-text article on embasic.org. First, let's give a little background. It used to be standard practice that kids 3 to 36 months who had a fever without a source would routinely get blood cultures drawn. I know that this seems crazy when you consider how we practice today, because no one is sticking a well-appearing one-year-old for blood cultures anymore, but that was the way things were done before this paper. The theory was that a certain percentage of kids will have what is called occult bacteremia. These are kids who look well on the outside, but who are harboring a serious bacterial infection. This was usually caused by pneumococcus, but in the mid-90s, a pneumococcal vaccine was introduced that dramatically reduced the incidence of pneumococcal infections. This reduction in pneumococcus led to a dramatic decrease in the incidence of occult bacteremia, so researchers started questioning whether we should keep getting blood cultures on otherwise well-appearing children. There were smaller studies that showed rates of occult bacteremia well below 1%, but they had relatively small numbers for such a rare disease that the answer wasn't quite settled. This study set out to get a much larger sample size, and they succeeded in pretty much answering this question once and for all. So let's take a look at the study. This was a retrospective cohort chart review. A cohort is a way of saying a group of patients who share similar characteristics. In this case, the cohort were children 3 to 36 months old with a fever and no recognizable source on history or physical exam. Basically, the provider thought that the patient had some sort of viral illness without a clearly recognizable syndrome. To do the study, the researchers looked back retrospectively at their electronic database of patient records to find these children and follow up on their blood culture results. They excluded kids who were admitted since they were probably sick appearing, as well as kids with indwelling catheters or who had a history of chronic diseases like immunodeficiency or cancer. This allowed the researchers to pluck out only those kids who looked well but had a blood culture done. This study worked because it was standard practice at this institution to get a blood culture in these children, so the researchers were pretty confident that they captured most children who fell into this category. Once they identified those children, they looked at the blood culture results to see what grew out. A pediatric infectious disease doctor reviewed all of the positive blood cultures and classified the growth as a contaminant, a true pathogen, or more information needed. For those patients classified as more information needed, the ID doctor reviewed the patient's chart to make a final determination as to whether this was a contaminant or a true pathogen. So for the study period of three years, there were 10,043 children seen in the ED between 3 and 36 months of age who were discharged with a diagnosis of fever and had a blood culture drawn. Of these children, 
1,630 met the exclusion criteria, leaving 8,413 children for final analysis. This is a real strength of the study because 83.7% of eligible children were included, meaning that the exclusion criteria were not super strict and they captured a large percentage of children who showed up to the ED with fever but without a source. Of these 8,413 blood cultures, only 159 grew anything at all for a positive rate of 1.9%. However, only 21 of these 159 pathogens were determined to be true pathogens and not contaminants. This led to a final true pathogen rate of only 0.25% or 1 in 400. There were 7.6 times more contaminants than there were true pathogens. If you look at strep pneumoniae, which is covered by the pneumococcal vaccine, the positive rate is even less at 0.17%. Since the study had over 8,000 patients, the 95% confidence intervals were very tight, with only about 0.1% in each direction. Let's talk about 95% confidence intervals for just a second. A 95% confidence interval is based on how large your sample size is, and it tells you how your results can be affected by random chance. Here's another way of thinking about this. If you repeat this study 100 times, 95% of the studies would fall into a true pathogen rate between about 0.15% and 0.35%. Remember that the true pathogen rate was right in the middle at 0.25%. That's a pretty narrow 95% confidence interval. Now let's say that you only had 1,000 patients in the study. This could lead to a 95% confidence interval that was much wider with an upper limit of 1 or 2% or even higher. This would give you a lot less confidence in the study results since the actual rate of true pathogens could be a lot higher, but we just don't know because the confidence intervals are so large. So I know what you're probably thinking. Even though the rate of true pathogens are only 1 in 400, blood cultures aren't that expensive and we could be saving a few kids from dying from sepsis and meningitis. So in this zero-miss malpractice environment that we have in the U.S., why not just do the blood culture? Here's a little math to consider. The rate of occult bacteremia from pneumococcus was 0.17%. From previous studies, we know that about 4% of children with pneumococcal bacteremia who aren't treated with antibiotics will go on to develop meningitis with a mortality rate of 8% and 30% having permanent neurological sequelae. So when reading this right from the article, to prevent one case of meningitis, you would need to test 14,700 children. You would need to test 49,000 children to prevent one case of neurological damage. And finally, you'd have to test 184,000 children to prevent one death from meningitis. When you look at the numbers this way, even if they are off by a factor of 10, we are still looking at a very large haystack with one tiny needle hidden inside, so it's probably not worth doing these blood cultures. A minor concern with this population is reducing costs, and this study shows that there were 7.6 times more contaminants than true pathogens. These contaminants led to increased costs, hospital callbacks, and in a few cases, unnecessary hospital emissions for no good reason. And one final thing, you were sticking a lot of kids and causing a lot of kids unnecessary pain for not a lot of good reason. Here's one final interesting point about this study. The pneumococcal vaccine only covers a few strains of strep pneumonia, but since its introduction, 
we've seen a rise in strains that are not covered by the vaccine. However, there has been a clear and marked reduction in pneumococcal meningitis since the introduction of the vaccine, even though it doesn't cover all the different subtypes of strep pneumonia. This may be due to cross-reactivity of the vaccine against strains that aren't covered. Finally, let's talk about the study's limitations. First, this is a retrospective study that is relying on chart reviews. These studies are prone to what is called selection bias, meaning that we can't account for all variables that may affect the final outcome because we didn't control which patients we admit to the study ahead of time. Another point to consider is that maybe only sicker children got blood cultures, and those kids who looked really well didn't get a blood culture drawn. This could lead you to wonder if this study truly looked at all children it should have, and whether any well-appearing children were missed who later had bad outcomes. However, it was standard practice at this institution to get a blood culture on all febrile children aged 3 to 36 months, so it's unlikely that a lot of kids were missed, since this would be considered a high-risk population by the institution's own protocols. You can even spin this into a positive. If there were children who were missed because they looked really well and they were included in the study analysis, the rate of occult bacteremia would have been even lower, since you would have most likely been increasing the number of children tested without increasing the true positive rate since they looked so well, and they probably would have done fine anyway. This study proved that providers in this pediatric ED knew what sick looked like, since only 0.25% of kids had a true positive blood culture and were discharged. So here's the final question. Does this study only apply to those children who have had their pneumococcal vaccine? Believe it or not, the answer is probably no. When the researchers broke down the children by age in relation to when they would have received their vaccinations, there was no difference in the rates of occult bacteremia. Also, the immunization rates in the hospital's surrounding area were far from perfect and in the range of 49 to 86%, depending on the age group, and they closely mirrored vaccination rates for the U.S. as a whole. It seems that this vaccine may be helping to reduce the overall rate of occult bacteremia through herd immunity by reducing the overall reservoir for the disease. This is not to say that you shouldn't vaccinate your kids. What it is saying is is that vaccinations seem to benefit even those who don't get it. Strep pneumonia used to cause really bad meningitis before this vaccine. In medical school, I remember one pediatrician who was close to retirement who said that bacterial meningitis used to be a near-daily occurrence during his residency in the late 70s. These days, true bacterial meningitis is exceedingly rare. During my residency, I did plenty of LPs, but I only diagnosed one case of meningitis in a child and that was a viral meningitis in a 30-day-old febrile infant. This study gives us the confidence to not pursue blood work in well-appearing children aged 3 to 36 months. So how can you use this study in your everyday practice? Here's how I think about it. If the child looks well, I do whatever workup is indicated with no CBC or blood culture. Remember that most guidelines say that females under 2 years old, uncircumcised boys under 12 months, and circumcised boys under 6 months should get a catheterized urine sample to check for UTI, but I'm not routinely sticking well-appearing kids for blood work. If I'm going to admit the patient and insert an IV, then I will send the CBC, chem panel, and blood culture, because the admitting team usually wants them done. If I am putting in an IV for hydration, but I think the child may bounce back after a bolus, 
and be able to go home. Then I will ask the nurse or tech to draw a CBC, chem panel, and blood culture, but hold them at the bedside and not send them to the lab. I really don't like discharging a patient with a pending blood culture, so I'll only send them if they actually end up getting admitted. Some may argue that if your ED or the patient's pediatrician can easily follow up the culture results, there is little harm in sending a culture, but now we are back to arguing against the well-established evidence that shows that these cultures are unnecessary. In my experience, the children's hospitals actually seem to send more blood cultures than the community hospitals because they tend to have better follow-up mechanisms for positive results. I am of the mindset that if you send a blood culture, the child is sick enough to warrant admission, and the callbacks for false positives just aren't worth it. This is just my own practice that is based on my reading of literature. If you have a better way of doing it, email me or post on eambasic.org so we can discuss it. Let's wrap this up by summarizing the study one more time. In well-appearing kids aged 3 to 36 months with fever without a source, the rate of true positive blood cultures is only 0.25%, and you'll have to test tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kids, to make a difference in clinical outcomes. So it's just not worth it to send that blood culture in that well-appearing kid. Before I go, I do have one quick announcement. I will be going to the Social Media and Critical Care Conference, or SMAC, in two weeks in Sydney, Australia. I will be presenting a poster and an oral presentation, and I'm really excited about the conference. The poster is on EM Basic, and the oral presentation is about a research project I did during residency. If you see me at the conference, please don't hesitate to say hi and let me know your thoughts on the podcast. I've already uploaded a profile to the SMAC conference app, so you can find me there. Let me just make one thing clear. Because of all the looming budget cuts here in the U.S., I will be going to this conference at my own expense and not getting any government funding, so please don't go calling your senators and representatives, okay? So that's all I have for now. As always, send me an email or post on embasic.org with your comments or questions. Until next time, this is Steve Carroll for EM Basic Essential Evidence, signing off.